0: have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the last part of the book, Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. 10 through 16. You ever met somebody that just gives you a bad vibe? Someone that you think something is off here? Only to find out that originally what you thought was actually true, was actually on point. But how many times have you trusted someone and thought they were absolutely incredible, only to be heartbroken and devastated year, later on, years later, many times, to find that they aren't who they said they were? That they broke your trust? Some people are relatively easy to read. While others can be rather a challenge, can they not? Today we'll be looking at problem people, and the truth is many of us have and may still be affected by them and influenced by them. We actually may become one of them if we're not careful. This morning we're going to be looking at three areas here in this text. Number one, identifying false teachers, verses 10 through 13, the first part. Number two, correcting false teachers, the second part of verse 13 through verse 14. And number three, getting to the heart, verses 15 and 16. Let's start with number one, identifying the false teachers, verses 10 through 13. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now last week we talked about what an elder should be and the qualifications for an elder. One of the qualifications calls for a proper handling of Scripture and dealing with false teachers and their effect on the church. That is literally one of the qualifications. It is important to make a distinction here in this text that there are those who knowingly go against the authority of Scripture and the elders that God has placed over the congregation and those who are deceived into following them without realizing that they themselves have been trapped. So I want to make sure that we understand there is a distinction here. Here, the problem that is addressed is essentially those who are pushing their own agenda and bringing down others with them. The part that's astounding here in this text is that Paul starts off by saying there are many like this. I think we miss phrases like this when we read a text of Scripture. There aren't a few; there are many like this. I want you to pause for a moment and think about that. Before Paul lays all this out to Titus, he's saying, there aren't just a few people like this in churches, there are many like this in churches. And the word that's used here, that he starts off with, is insubordinate. Insubordinate. Subject to no one or any order. They do not like authority and refuse to submit to authority that God has laid out in His Word. They essentially are the authority characterized as stubborn people who refuse to let others lead as they should. You ever met people like that? They're the ones that always want to be in authority, they never want to be under authority. They always want people to follow their lead, they refuse to follow someone else's lead. Those are essentially the people that are mentioned here by the Apostle Paul. In fact, to them, Hebrews 13, 17 would be very offensive. Listen to what it says. Yeah, this is actually in the Bible. By the way, this is not Pastor Roman's words. It says this, "...Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief." for that would be unprofitable for you. A person who is not willing to submit to spiritual authority, now providing that that spiritual person is qualified, let's make sure we understand correctly, it's not just any authority, it's one that's qualified by what Scripture already clearly lays out earlier in the chapter. That person who does not submit to spiritual authority is deceived into thinking, No one understands or cares for them in the way that they should or they prefer. Sometimes the truth hurts, church, and there isn't really any way to really soften the blow for what needs to be addressed. Sometimes, as an elder in the church, you want to address a person you're not sure how else you can really soften the blow because it has to be said. Unfortunately, with people like this that are influenced and become false teachers false leaders in the church they go out of their way to kick against what it is the elders are trying to share with the congregation an elder called by God understands that God holds him accountable for what to watch out for and the truth is we are to watch out for other souls when an elder or spiritual leader in the church sees that a person is struggling with the sin, when they approach that person say, hey, brother or sister, here's what's going on in your life. You need to address this. It is not with the intention to put that person down or to hurt them or devastate them. If it is done with the compassion of Christ, it is to restore them and give them direction in their life because they're caring for their soul. Well, what's amazing here is, what's exactly happening here is they're refusing to listen and even get to a place where they accuse the elder or pastor of not caring, or even worse, judging them or singling them out. You see this all the time. We see this at a young age when we're growing up in school, do we not? It's the one child that misbehaves, and they think that they're being singled out. The truth is, people don't grow out of that stage. They become little adults, still. There's still little children that think everybody's out to get them when they become adults. We have not matured in some areas, and this is one of them. When a person's struggling with sin, when a person needs direction, when they need guidance, when they need help out of the pit, they refuse many times because they think that person's judging them or they're not really there for their best interest. Many times... Your best interest and my best interest is not what we clearly see. We're assuming one thing and somebody else may see the truth. The truth is all of us can be self-deceived. That's the reality that Scripture presents. Here's the part that I think is hard for people to fathom sometimes. Pastors and elders need to make judgment calls in the church based on the standard of Scripture. They are not just letting anything fly as that would no longer qualify them, by the way. If a pastor lets anything fly, they're no longer qualified to be a pastor. Every elder that's called by God to be a leader in the church is called to do this actual work that people can't stand them for. What would a pastor be needed if he wasn't to call you back to what the Word says? You might as well go watch a TED Talk. There's no reason to come to church. That's exactly what God's called elders toward. And anybody that refuses to see that and puts themselves and sets themselves as the leader and says, I refuse to submit to spiritual authority, is essentially saying, I don't want the elder to be an elder. If they're qualified, that's a sin. Because that's what God's called them to. Here's another description that's mentioned here. Idle talkers and deceivers. Speaking foolishness and deceptive toward others. These are people who will bring up nonsense that sounds spiritual, but is truly void of biblical accuracy. Paul especially points out those of the circumcision. Jews that brought the requirement of circumcision to salvation. Many times, these types of people would bring up pointless nonsense, which only led to deception. Questioning the authority to the point of stating, it wasn't enough what was required for salvation. There needed to be more. Circumcision sounds spiritual to add, but it's blasphemy against the finished sacrifice of Christ. Christ. It sounds like a good thing to add, but it's absolutely contrary to what God said. Essentially, the false teacher was in it for the money, not to be steadfast to God's word. Now, what's scary is this next phrase in the text, who subvert whole households. Whole families were affected by their teaching. This wasn't just a few people here and there. Whole families were subverted in the church. Following false teachers. There are many homes affected by false teaching even today in the church. Many times it's because the man of the house is not doctrinally literate. Spiritually obeyed, without any discernment. And he doesn't want to submit to other men who know more scripture than he does. I've got it all figured out. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anybody else's help. These type of men allow any Bible study that someone else recommends for their, their wife to attend. I'm going to pause for a moment and make this statement. We have to be picky about what we present to people in the church. This is not optional. There's a lot of things masquerading as good doctrinal content, which is garbage. And just because it moves someone's heart and they have some feelings after they read it, doesn't make it accurate. You can make an emotionally moving story lay out sin in a beautiful way and it's still wrong. The world does it all the time. Just look at what media has done to all sorts of sins that God calls sin. They've romanticized filth before God. But you don't understand. They really love each other. No, we don't understand that Scripture clearly says what it says. And we're letting experiences dictate what the Word clearly reveals. False teachers always have disciples after them, to the point of it being impossible to pull some away from their teaching. There are Christians that have been so deceived by false teachers that, that you could never pull them away from that author that they love reading. Well, how dare you? God used them in my life in this way. How dare you tell me that they're wrong? I'm not trying to dare tell you. I'm telling you is calling them out, and you're not seeing it. Paul warns Timothy of something very similar in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. Here's what it says. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Here's a dead giveaway you may be following a false teacher. They agree with everything you believe. They agree with everything you believe. False teachers mold to the people around them. And with legalists, they would tell the church isn't preaching enough about standards. And to the liberal or antinomian against the law in the church, that church is just too judgmental. They operate in different stratospheres one of the ways we can be deceived in the church is by simply following others online that we prefer based on our likes you ever have Facebook recommend something that you probably would like I gotta tell you it's pretty genius what they've done the way they market the way that they push hey based on your likes in this in the faith here's this author you should check out I'm sitting there checking out that I'm going no based on this is not what I would want here Unfortunately, people get duped into that. Oh, well, no, they believe Jesus like I do. If it, The word Christians there must be fine. Unfortunately, a lot of people prefer following people that they like, what they present based on their own personal preferences. If you like everything that's preached and nothing confronts or convicts you, you may be following a false teacher. If there's never a point to where you really disagree or there's something called out in your life, you may be following a false teacher. There have been plenty of good men and women in my life since I was a little boy that have confronted things in my life. And in the moment, I did not like what they said. But as time passed, I went, wow, they were right. They were right. They were right. And they actually cared for me in calling me out on it. There should be enough grace to comfort if you're struggling and enough conviction if you're rebelling. If it's only what you prefer, positive words of encouragement or constant reminder of how pathetic you are, you may not be getting the whole truth. Because we swing on extremes on this one. Some of us are like, give me hellfire and brimstone only. I'm a miserable wretch. And the other part of us, like, I want positive all the time. Don't you dare tell me anything's wrong. You need both, because Scripture presents both. And you need them in balance and in context. Not ripping a verse out of its context to give you something you want. Some of us cringe at encouragement in Scripture. We are more than conquerors. (laughs) Yeah, right. Have you seen my life? What are you talking about, Pastor? I'm a failure. Well, some of us only want without all the negative, right? Oh, wretched man that I am. I don't want that text. Give it to somebody else. They're wretched. They're both in the Bible. And just because you have an inclination to the one you prefer doesn't mean you don't need to hear both at times. Unfortunately, with people that are against the negative... When they read verses like that, who shall deliver me from the body of death, I mean, they just scream, give me some encouragement, Paul, this feels hopeless. Paul actually does if you keep reading the book. Unfortunately, a lot of us stop. We build our whole theology off of a one verse. There should always be a check-in every single one of our homes. Every one of us that has family that we're raising, we should... Look at our homes and see what we've allowed as far as false teaching into our homes. It could be anything from books to movies to music and how each of these things have affected our view of God. Some false teaching comes in through an abuse of a doctrine that is true. Whether it be eternal security and I can do whatever I want, I'm saved. To believe in God as sovereign, I don't need to do anything to reach others around me. Those are false teaching. Those are not in line with what Scripture says. Constable makes this point here where Paul quotes Epimenius, who lived in the 6th century B.C. Other Pauline citations of pagan writers appear in Acts 17.28 and 1 Corinthians 15.33. This line from one of the Epimeneus' writings had received wide acceptance in the Greek world as being true. Paul agreed with this poet. The Cretans generally tended to be liars, beastly, lazy, and gluttonous. It was a stereotype that ended up being a true stereotype of those people. The stereotype of a false teacher tended to be quite accurate, according to Paul. In fact, as one commentator points out, so notorious were the Cretans that the Greeks actually formed a verb, kredizeon, or kredize, which means to lie and to cheat. They literally made a word for it. Essentially, what matters to Titus and the elders is that he is to train up and to stop these false teachers and correct them. Because the truth is, they affect others. Number two, correcting false teachers. The second part of verse 13 and 14. Here's what is stated. Therefore, be nice to them. No. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. There's no easy way to say this But when false teachers come into a church, they are to be called out, not tolerated. They are not to be viewed as innocent parties that just don't know any better. Usually they are quite skillful themselves in their speech, hence the deception. They sound good. They sound close to the truth. Something's a little off, but it's not a big deal. At least that's the way a lot of people perceive it. If an elder does not correct false teaching, which leads to false living, he is not doing what God has called him to. What seems innocent to most in a congregation can be quite dangerous when seen through the proper lens of Scripture. What starts off as a quest to draw closer to God but ends with an indictment of others because of some standards you put up to guard against your own sins in your life is essentially not what God would have you to do. You see it happen in the church all the time. Knowing your own sinful tendencies and asking for understanding from others does not mean they all now must follow and live with your guardrails. You and I don't get to go to someone's house and set up their boundaries for them based on sins that we struggle with. And essentially that happens in a lot of churches. Well, this is my conviction, so I'm going to impose this conviction on others around me. Because I love God more than they do. Oh, brother or sister, that's deception. For example, if a person can't help but constantly worry and get anxious when it comes to money, it doesn't mean that people around them should never enjoy spending any money. Because they're a wretch in this area. Yet you know people like that. You enjoy something in your life, I wish I had that. That should not stop you from enjoying your life because someone else is miserable. The difference is you shouldn't be flaunting it to throw it in their face. From what it looks like, circumcision sounded very spiritual. It really did. To add to salvation, but it's essentially a total abuse of grace, and unless confronted, was tolerated as just fine in the church. There are a lot of things that Christians tolerate in one another that they should not. When the line is crossed to where a person's personal standards, we're going to talk about this in a moment, personal standards or convictions based on what God has convicted them of in their personal sinful struggles become something that they impose on someone else, you've crossed the line. The church should be on guard just as much against legalism, which are added ways to please God that He never prescribed. And license, taking away the standards that are clearly stated, both are to be opposed equally. Jesus never had to confront many liberal scholars in his day because they were not the majority. They were not the majority in the Jewish culture at that time. But the Apostle Paul had plenty that abused grace by living in license because the people that he was dealing with literally were always more in the area of license in the way that they practiced. Which is why he pens the famous text, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We should always graciously but truthfully confront the effects of false teaching that can arise in any one of our lives. Every one of us has a story and a background. Things that have shaped the way that we see the world, the way that we see the church, the way that we view Christ. And some of them aren't exactly accurate. Listen to what Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Brother or sister, when you start imposing your will on other people based on what you think God wants them to do, you are now stepping into a territory that's not yours. And what the Pharisees did, we all have the proclivity to do if you've been convicted about certain sins. I know many men and women that have been convicted over certain sins, God's changed them in that area, and they go out of their way and start condemning others for not doing that instead of letting the Spirit do His work. And living a life of an an example before them There's one thing that you're not going to find me Having long debates about with people online It's a waste of my time It's Halloween every year It's just not one of those debates I care to get into I have my personal convictions as a family We have them And yes, I'm pretty straightforward on them If people should ask But I don't go out of my way to go Hey, someone's dressing like a princess They're now a Satan worshiper I'm not going to go there And unfortunately, this is what happens when we start making our personal convictions a standard that we believe God wants us to impose on everyone else. Be very careful, believer, how many of those things that you judge others for are really what God says. And not just your own commandments or someone else's that you decide to borrow as your own. It must be what Scripture states and with the heart of the Father behind it. Has to be number three getting to the heart verses fifteen through sixteen. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. What's amazing about this text is that there's only one way really to unpack it well, and that is turning to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, Paul really opens this text up in a whole new way, if you will. If you only see that phrase, to the pure, all things are pure, you're not going to understand the full meaning unless you go to Romans chapter 14. And we're going to read the whole chapter because I think it's important to make sure I stay in context with what Paul is dealing with here. So bear with me. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again. That he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more. But rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died." Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats." because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin there's a lot to unpack there but i want to unpack some of the key points which tie back to the text in titus the first one is we should accept others convictions in the faith verses one through nine not all of us will have the same convictions just as they didn't back then when it came to eating meat offered to idols. It's essentially, don't you know that meat offered to idols, that, that meat right there is offered to idols. You should not partake. And the other person goes, I know, but I'm not worshiping idols. I'm not. That's essentially a debate there. I take it this way in a modern context. If a person has a conviction on a certain company or product they refuse to support and says, but they support things we don't support, while another person says, yes, but they also provide things that benefit my family and I'm not participating with them in the other areas. Essentially, you'd be left without a company to work for if they support something you don't want to be a part of. I think many of us are a lot more inconsistent than we like to admit in this area. So for the person that comes out very strong on this, there's plenty of hypocrisy in other areas we can point out. If that's your conviction, you absolutely should not work for or support a company that goes against your convictions. But to go ahead and tell everybody else that they need to support your convictions is a line that you've crossed. The second thing we see here is we should not condemn others for their stance, verses 10 through 13. 13. Whatever your stance is on personal convictions, if it's not expressly stated in Scripture, you ought not condemn them. If we're talking moral, Scripture is very clear of what is and isn't allowed by God. And anything that's in violation of those scriptural standards is not just a personal conviction. It's a violation of the Word of God. When it comes to personal convictions or familial convictions, because let's be honest, all of us do family a little bit differently, do we not? We have certain standards for our kids that other parents may not. Our kids go to bed at 8, your kids may go to bed at 9, sometimes some of us, who knows? Not one of those is like clearly laid out in Scripture, it's like 8 o'clock is God's time, like none of that is, okay? You can't argue that. The truth is, we will have different convictions, and there needs to be a sense of no condemnation to those who hold differently than we do. Because essentially, we will both give an account before God ourselves, personally and as families. I don't know why we're so bent out of shape of worrying about everybody else all the time. I think we've got enough to deal with in our own homes, do we not? What is it with some of us that God works in our lives? We arrive in this one area and we feel like we now have the right to judge every family that does something that we don't anymore. I got convicted over this one thing. I'm going to go condemn every other family in the church now that's not convicted over it yet. Is that what you're called to? Here's the truth. Whatever your conviction is, make sure it's not causing another brother or sister to stumble. by doing the very thing they feel strongly against in front of them. You need to be careful. This isn't an argument for flaunt what you're able to do. The caveat here is that you and I may not know what that person's conviction is if they don't share it with us. And that happens a lot. I know that I've offended people a time or two without knowing their personal convictions on something. And when I did find out, I had to go personally tell them, I'm sorry, forgive me, I did not know. So let let me make this very practical and something that I think all of us can relate to, particularly those of us that grew up in more fundy type of churches. If you have a certain music standard you're okay with and someone else has a different one, don't go be blaring metal music in someone that's very opposed to it in a Christian standpoint. Don't blare that in your car when they come into your car. You're going to have different personal convictions on some things. Some churches are very much contemporary Christian music is of the devil, even though I don't agree with that. And then some are like literally everything goes, which is also standard way too much into unbreaking God's laws. The truth is you and I need to work those personal convictions out between God and us and our families. And we don't need to impose them on everybody else or flaunt them in front of everyone else. And if we know a brother or sister that has a very strong conviction in something, we need to be more careful. Once we know, we should do our best to make sure it's not something that we are doing that will cause that person to stumble or violate their conscience. Because violating their conscience is a sin. Which is why Paul says, one person esteems this, another person esteems that. Both are doing it for God. Both are. But if you're violating, you can't do it in, your, in, in faith, then you are violating your conscience, which is a sin. How many of us have ever had a violation of conscience based on not understanding Scripture clearly, and we realize later on, wait a second, it's my conscience that's off, not the Word of God. I'm convicted over this because I've just been told that this is right. One of the worst things any church can do is impose a standard on people whose consciences God's working on. You've got to let the Holy Spirit do His work in people's lives. You're not Him. God didn't go, hey, you know what, I've got the Trinity, I need you too. He doesn't need you to convict other people. He uses the word to convict other people, and you may be the instrument, but His intention is not for you to make up stuff to convict other people. Because the last part that Paul gets to here, which I think is a very crucial point, the goal is to build unity in the church. Verses 14 through 23. Many have a conviction over what may seem to be trivial things to others. But if they know themselves and where it can lead them, then we must do our best to not put them in danger by flaunting our freedom in front of them. This is a very common one that I know is always brought up in churches, but I'm going to bring it up here in this text. If someone has an alcohol problem, the one thing you don't do is drink in front of them. Absolutely not. You're literally presenting sin before them. Don't do it. And as the text says, if you have faith to be able to do certain things, do it. Keep it between yourself and God. You don't have to make it a point to everybody else in the freedom that you share. And this is one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand and we get confused. People are like, well, I'm like this with my family and myself. I probably should be like this with others or else I'm a hypocrite. No, you're not. If you have certain convictions and things that God has not convicted you over and you can freely do in Christ, do them to God's glory. But if you know a brother or sister that's saying, hey, you know what, I got a conviction against this, don't do it in front of them. And it's not hypocrisy. It's understanding your brother or sister. That's doing what this text says, maintaining unity. The truth is, unity of the body is at stake and both the side of the conviction needs to have understanding of the other, and the one that doesn't allow the matter should understand those that do. It isn't just one side that needs to understand the other on something. If you're the one that's like, hey, you know what? This is going to cause me to sin. I'm going to be against you now on this because you keep doing this yourself and they don't flaunt it in front of you. They definitely understand that and they don't do it any- anymore in front of you. You need to be understanding of that and not hold it against them. Neither should the brother that has freedom to do it impose it on the one that doesn't and try to violate their conscience. This is a matter of unity in the church. This is a big deal to God. God. And arguing that only one side matters in this is missing the point of the text. In fact, Paul says that we know that he, by authority of Christ, no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. If someone believes it is, for them it is. The goal is to build each other up while still maintaining different convictions at times. I know it's hard for us to believe that's possible. There have been many people with different convictions from mine. And sometimes their convictions were more on point and in line with Scripture than mine. But they were many times patient with me, which made me see things for what they should be in my life. Some of the worst responses in my life have been those that have imposed a personal conviction on me, and then I realize years later, I'm like, that's not my conviction. I borrowed it from so-and-so. They made me feel guilty over it when I was younger. Some things that are most definitely allowed in Scripture should only be kept between yourself and God and not flaunted to those who would be hurt by it, particularly those with different standards or convictions. You see, Facebook is a prime example of this. I've really wrestled with how to properly use Facebook to the glory of God. It's a cesspool, I find. Especially around Halloween and Christmas season. Oh, my goodness. Please stop with the debates every year. It's Halloween of Satan. Can it be glorified for God? Yes, I know. I've read all those articles. Is Christmas a pagan holiday? Have we really redeemed it for Jesus? I know. All of those debates every year. And what's amazing is how heated everybody gets over him. Like, I love the Lord more than you do. Where Scripture lands is where I want us as a church to land. That this is in the context of the local church. But it also may be helpful to be aware of those on your list of friends who may be Christians and how you may be breaking that standard on Facebook even. Set an example even to the outside believers. If you're not sure you should post something, believer, you probably shouldn't. That's kind of my rule that I've kind of come up with personally. If I'm going, "Eh, this is probably going to go the wrong way, delete. And I've had posts that I mean, I'm talking are long, I thought through them, I'm like, I'm just literally opening a can of worms and it's going to go nasty. This is not going to be for the edification of the brothers and sisters of Christ. Delete. I'm not saying all you should post is pictures of your kids and kittens. That's not what I'm saying either. You see, back in Titus, the last part in the description of false teachers is that they're violators of conscience. Because their own is defiled and seared. There is no sacredness to what Scripture teaches or what Paul, who was sent by Christ, taught. The ultimate proof is in the lifestyle of these false teachers. And it says here in the text, in works they deny him. If it looks like a false teacher, acts like a false teacher, it's probably a false teacher. Some of these should be very obvious to us, but they're not. These men were utterly hateful to the things of God, outright disobedient, and flat-out disqualified. Flat-out disqualified. So in conclusion, what do you need to guard against? What do you need to guard against? Is it that false teaching that may have crept into your home unaware? You're not sure, but there's some things that have been going on in the home that you're not sure really line up to Scripture well and you've just tolerated them and been okay with them? Are you simply not paying attention to some of the things that you are influenced by personally? When you read an author of a book, do you know where they come from? Do you do the research to do that? Hey, they went to this school, they went to this university, they studied under this guy. Do you do any of that homework? Or do you go, hey, there's a book that's been recommended, sounds pretty good. I know it moved my friend, it's going to move me probably, I want to read it. Do you pay attention to your children and who they're being influenced by, parents? You see, discipleship isn't a process where only you can input, others do too. Everybody tends to think discipleship in this positive manner every time, but truth is, all of us are disciples, it's just what are we discipled by. Who's teaching us? Maybe you've allowed yourself to be deceived into thinking that Scripture clearly states isn't exactly what you personally believe. It just grinds against you that God would allow people some freedom that you don't really agree with. Like, man, that just doesn't feel right that they are allowed to do that and I'm not because my conscience is bothered by it. There are many Christians and so called Christians who fall into this trap. Giving a pass to what clearly is stated here in the text. Don't impose on others what you yourself don't practice. Maybe you're the brother or sister who enjoys what God has given them to the point of flaunting it in front of others, even those who you may cause to stumble. Maybe it wasn't intentional before, but now you just don't care. That's not the heart God wants. We ought to care in these areas. You may be on the other side of that equation. You hold to certain convictions others just don't hold to in the church. But your problem is that you're now trying to put that conviction onto others, and you're not even realizing that you're doing that. No one's personal convictions that can't be clearly stated from Scripture should ever be the standard for the church, ever, ever doesn't matter if it's a pastor. Everything that is to be a standard of Scripture is to be followed. Personal convictions that don't have a clear alignment to the Word of God should not be imposed on others. Just because you don't allow yourself something doesn't mean you now must condemn anyone else that does. God did not call you to do that. Especially if they've given you their word, they would do their best not to be a stumbling block to you. Believe them, please. Have the grace that you expect others to have for you. It's amazing how everybody wants us to be gracious to us. Like, everybody needs to be gracious to me. But I get to be that pointing finger at everybody else and pointing out everybody else's flaws. Me and the Holy Spirit, we're here for you. That's a work of Satan, by the way, if you think that's you. And that's what you're called to. Because Satan's goal is to sow discord among the brethren. And you're breaking up unity that's actually going against what Scripture says. The goal of the church is unity over the essentials of the faith and understanding and differences of convictions over matters of conscience. I'm going to tell you right now, church, In my family, with my extended relatives, we have very different convictions on certain things that none of us can clearly go the Bible says this. And God calls us to understand one another in that. What's really devastating and heartbreaking is that so many of us want to be more spiritual and holy than Jesus himself was. And we're like, nope, the standards of the Bible aren't enough, you need to do this. That's essentially what the Pharisees did, and we're modern-day Pharisees pretending we're not. Everybody else is the Pharisee. We're not. Even though we've just imposed a bunch of standards that Scripture never clearly laid out. How dare you subscribe to Disney? That's your personal conviction. Go for it. Don't subscribe. Throw everything Disney out in your house. Godspeed. You're not going to hear from me on that. To go condemn another brother or sister because they want to have their kid watch Dumbo, it's messed up. It's not right. We need to understand one another in these areas. We can all become problem people in the church if we're not careful. What is God wanting you to change in particular? Not your brother or sister, what does he want you to change?